I'm John, and this is D-O-L-W-2, episode 58, The Rite of Sodomy, and I'll be reading from The Rite of Sodomy, Homosexuality in the Roman Catholic Church, by Randy Ingle, volume 1, pages 323 to 336. Burgess enters M-16. In 1936, Burgess got a job as host on a weekly British broadcasting company BBC radio show that included interviews with members of parliament. He was appointed by fellow Kingsman George Barnes, the deputy director of talks, who was rumored to have kept both a boyfriend, Burgess, as well as a mistress. Using the British airways, Burgess was able to promote Moscow's propaganda line, especially with regard to its intervention in the Spanish Civil War that had just broken out. On occasion, he brought Blunt in for an interview. Through the contacts he made at his BBC post and his old boys' club connections, Burgess secured entry into Britain's Secret Intelligence Service, Section D of M16, in 1939, notwithstanding the fact that Burgess had just been arrested by the London Metropolitan Police for homosexual solicitation in a public laboratory at Paddington's railway station. One of his assignments in the European Propaganda Department of M16 involved working with Poles whom the British were training for sabotage in Poland and the Soviet Union. Rebecca West reported that these men were by and large brave, virile, and pious Roman Catholic patriots and anti-communists who were willing to risk their lives for their nation. She was incensed by the thought that the Brits would hand them over to a flaming homosexual and possible communist like Burgess. As for Burgess, he methodically added all of the Polish patriots' names to his list from Moscow. After the war, that list became a death sentence for many of these Poles and their families who were repatriated behind Stalin's Iron Curtain. When Section D was abolished in July of 1940, Burgess found himself without a job, but not for long. Burgess returned to the BBC and resumed his work as a journalist until June of 1944, when he landed a job in the press department of the Foreign Office. Then, by a stroke of luck, Guy's close friend, Hector McNeil, MP, became the Foreign Secretary in the Labour government. McNeil asked Burgess to be his private secretary in 1946, when McNeil moved up the second spot, moved up to the second spot in the Foreign Secretary's office, the new British Minister of State took Burgess with him. The upward bound Burgess served McNeil State for saved McNeil for two years, during which time he had access to virtually all of Britain's national security files as well as diplomatic secrets. Burgess provided the Soviets with full reports of various parliamentary committees and Ministry of Defense classified documents. Next, Burgess went over to the Far Eastern Division of the Foreign Office, where he got into hot water as a result of a drunken pederastic spree while on official assignment assignment to Gibraltar and Tangier. The disgraceful incident should have ended Burgess's government career and would have had Burgess not been a protege of Hector McNeil, who was now Secretary of State for Scotland. So rather than firing Burgess outright, foreign office officials decided to bump him upstairs. The problem boy was promptly posted to the United States as Second Secretary of the British Embassy in Washington, D.C., to serve under General 
to serve under Sir Oliver Franks, who had replaced the queer Archibald Kerr, Clark Kerr as Britain's ambassador to the United States. And here Burgess remained until May 1951, when he was suddenly recalled to England, and then mysteriously disappeared along with fellow spy Donald McLean. British intelligence would not see either of their faces again until February 12, 1956, when both men resurfaced in Moscow at a KGB-arranged televised press conference, at which time they declared their allegiance to the Soviet Union and denounced Western imperialism. The Soviets knew that they were taking a gamble when they brought Burgess into the Cambridge ring, but it was a gamble that paid off in the end. During his 12 years as an establishment figure in British Foreign Office, Burgess became one of Moscow's most productive spies and agents of influence. Burgess had successfully manipulated the outcome of a number of policies in the Foreign Office in favor of the Soviet Union. He gave the Kremlin the inside track on all Anglo-American policies and strategies. While in the United States, Burgess passed on to the Soviets vital details on the critical opening of the Korean War. According to Costello, Burgess took tons of documents to the Soviet embassy in Washington, D.C. to photograph. Cable and diplomatic pouches were used to transfer other valuable information to Moscow. While working at the British Embassy in the United States, Burgess provided the Soviets with top-secret data on the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, NATO, and American nuclear research. It was reported that when M-15 agents arrived at Burgess's flat on New Bond Street to search the premises, among the things that Burgess had left behind was a box of letters from his former sex partners. Burgess was sending British intelligences a message, for, but M-15 remained clueless. Philby's Foreign Adventures, Kim Philby's Life as a Soviet Mole, codenames Sonchen, Tom, and Stanley, took a somewhat different turn in the road than that of Burgess and Blunt once he had returned to England in the summer of 1934 with his new bride. His Soviet controller had decided that Philby could best serve Moscow by trading his communist cloak for a fascist one and by taking up a career in foreign journalism where he could make use of his linguistic talents. Philby took a low-paying job as an assistant editor and review for the down-and-out liberal publication Review of the Reviews while he took some linguistic courses at the London School of Oriental Studies. By the time the review collapsed in 1935, Philby's transformation from leftist to rightist was sufficient to secure him membership in the Anglo-German Fellowship and a promised position as editor of a new Anglo-German trade journal that never materialized. When the Spanish Civil War broke out in 1936, Philby received press credentials as a foreign correspondent for several British papers that included including the London General Press. He departed from England on February 3, 1937, ostensibly to cover the war front as a reporter, but his real reason for going to Spain was to arrange for the assassination of General Francisco Franco, the opposition leader to the popular front. In the end, Franco was not assassinated, but by a strange turn of events, Philby managed to get himself the Spanish Red Cross of military merit for bravery that was pinned on the covert Soviet agent by Franco himself. 
1939, at the outbreak of the Second World War, Philby was posted to the British Expeditionary Force in France as a seasoned war correspondent. Kim managed to get himself ingratiated with the British Secret Intelligence Service by providing them with valuable information on various German enterprises, information that the NKGB had supplied to him for just such a purpose. Although Philip's loyalty to Moscow was strained by the Stalin-Hitler pact and news of Stalin's purges that included the killing of Kim's former NKGB friends, he remained in the communist fold and went on to become a master spy for the Soviet Union. In July 1940, Philby entered Section D of the SIS and was assigned to work under Burgess. Shortly thereafter, a new sabotage and subversion agency, the Special Operations Executive, SOE, was formed and it absorbed Section D. Burgess was fired, but Philby was retained thanks to the influence of his father's old friend, Colonel Valentin Vivian, a counter-espionage officer in Section B. The SOE was responsible for carrying out covert operations against the Nazis in occupied Europe. In September 1941, Philby was assigned to M-16 Section B, where he was put in charge of covert counterintelligence operations on the Iberian Peninsula and the Atlantic Islands. In the meantime, Philby had supplied the Soviets with a nearly complete list of M-16 operatives around the world as well as M-16's worldwide organizational and operational charts and manuals. Among the more curious and esoteric reports filed by Philby was one on homosexual orgies, drug use, and black masses in high English society. Socially, the sign that Philby's star was on the rise was an invitation to join the Athenaeum, one of England's most prestigious clubs preferred by Walt Whitehall and England's clerical elite. In the summer of 1944, Kim Philby, Soviet spy, was made head of a new intelligence department, Section 9 of M16, responsible for Soviet counterespionage. Once Philby took office, the chance of catching Soviet spies was virtually nil unless the NKBD deliberately wished to sacrifice the agent. Philby had become a very dangerous man. In August 1945, KGB Colonel Konstantin Volkov, the newly assigned Soviet consul to Turkey, went into the British embassy in Istanbul and asked for asylum and money. In return, he offered the to reveal the names of two Soviet spies in Britain's foreign office, Burgess and McLean, and one in British counterintelligence Philby, among other pieces of intelligence. Volkov was put on hold while embassy officials called home. British intelligence was alerted to the defection on M-16 Director Stuart Menzies, then assigned Philby the rank of debriefing Volkov. After alerting Soviet intelligence, Philby delayed his arrival in Turkey in order to give the Soviet Smersh time, S-M-E-R-S-H, time to kidnap Volkov and bring him home to Stalin and ordered his execution. Smersh is derived from the acronym of Smert Shiponium, Death to Spies. Soon after his arrival in Istanbul, Philby dutifully informed his superiors at M16 that the case was dead. Four months later, on November 20th, 
1945, Philby informed his NKGB contacts that Elizabeth Bentley, one of the Soviet's most important agents in America, had defected and was in the hands of the FBI. In August of 1949, after spending two years as head of station, Turkey, where M-16 had assigned him to collect intelligence that might affect Britain's oil interests in the Middle East, Philby and the Soviets got their big break. Philby was informed that he was to be posted to Washington, D.C. as M-16's liaison officer to the CIA and FBI. Prior to his leaving for America, Philby was briefed on the Verona Codex, the most guarded intelligence secret of the Allies during the Cold War. Since there were a large number of references to Venona in this chapter, a brief explanation as to its history, scope, and its significance should prove helpful to the reader. In February 1943, the U.S. Army's Signal Security Agency, SSA, started up a very small and very secretive project that was later given the arbitrary code name Venona. Its purpose was to decipher Soviet diplomatic cables in which the army had been collecting which the army had been collecting since 1939 when Stalin and Hitler signed their non-aggression pact. Unfortunately, the complexity of the two-part deciphering system did not permit the SSA to read the cables until 1946 after the war had ended. It was at this time that the SSA realized that of the 70 750,000 intercepted cables thought to contain mundane diplomatic and commercial trade data, just under half were actually secret Soviet communiques, that is, Soviet spy messages between the NKVD, Soviet secret police, and the GRU, Soviet military intelligence, and their Soviet operatives in the United States and around the world. Today we know that prior to receiving Philby's report on Benona, the Soviets had already planted a mole at the SSA. His name was William Weisband, and he was an NKGB agent, codenamed Jura. This meant that by 1949, the Soviets were already in the process of changing their code. However, they could do nothing about the cables sent prior to the change. That is, the cable cables sent between 1940 and 1948. These cables revealed the code names of hundreds of Americans who spied for the Soviet Union before, during, and after the Second World War, most of whom were recruited by the Communist Party USA. Philby in the United States. Once Kim and Eileen Force, the second of his four wives, got settled in their beautiful Washington, D.C. home at 5228 Nebraska Avenue, the Philby residence became famous for its glamorous liquor-flowing parties where top-level CIA and FBI agents and their wives were entertained and, while under the influence, let drop occasional tidbits of agency news for Philby in Moscow. Among those that befriended Philby was CIA counterintelligence chief James Jesus Angleton. In August 1950, when the British Foreign Office dumped Burgess on the United States, Guy moved in with Kim, Eileen, and their young family. Although Burgess's disgusting behavior and anti-American anti-Americanism became legendary in CIA and FBI quarters, his well-honed image as a homosexual drunken lout prevented his identification as a Soviet agent. He simply did not fit the profile of a Russian spy. At one of the Philby's 
one of the public parties in January 1951, the drunken Burgess came in uninvited and drew an obscene character of the wife of the guest of honor, Bill Harvey, the FBI's resident counterintelligence expert. A scuffle ensued, and Libby Harvey left the affair, followed by her irate husband. Harvey never forgot the incident, but interestingly, his nemesis became probably not Burgess. The next morning, a stay-over guest, Professor Wilfred Basil Mann, a British-born nuclear scientist, later identified as a Soviet agent, said he saw Philby and Burgess in bed together with a bottle of champagne, but conveniently he did not mention the incident to Angleton at the CIA until one year later when Burgess was safely in Moscow. In the meantime, the treachery continued. As early as 1946, Philby had learned that British intelligence services were interested in initiating covert operations against Stalin in Eastern Europe as part of its Cold War strategy. This meant that Philby and the Soviets were in on the ground floor of the SIS-CIA jointly conceived invasion of Albania. This series of tragic misadventures led by Albanian guerrilla forces between 1949 and 1953 led to the death jailing, torture, and forced labor of several thousand Albanians. In September of 1949, just prior to his departure to America, Philby had been briefed by M-16 on the general details of the Albanian mission, which he passed on to his Soviet contacts before leaving London. The Soviets, in turn, alerted the Sigourmi, the Albanian secret police, and its Soviet advisors that the British and Americans were preparing to send native anti-communist insurgents into the country. From 1949 to 1951, Philby as Joint Commander and Liaison for the American Office of Policy Coordination, OPC, the anti-Soviet subversive operations arm of the National Security Council, NSC, that spearheaded the top secret covert Albanian mission, provided the Soviets and the Sigourmi with names, types, of weapons carried, dates, and landing locations of the small bands of Albanian operatives. Wherever and whenever the insurgents entered Albania by sea, overland, or by parachute, the secret policy and security forces were always waiting for them. Many of the volunteers, including the legendary Zanel Kadajal, captain of the Royal Guard of the exiled Albanian King Zog, were shot on the spot or tried and then sentenced to suffer death by the court or imprisoned from seven years to life. Their relatives and friends were picked up for interrogation. Some were shot outright, others were left others left to rot in jail or sent to Siberia, where many of them, including children, died of malnutrition. The Americans smelled a rat, a rat named Philby. In June of 1951, two months after Burgess and McLean's mysterious disappearance, Philby was also recalled to London, despite demands from CIA Chief Walter Bedell Smith that Philby be removed from intelligence service, and despite all the years of accumulated evidence that Philby was a, a Soviet mole, he was permitted to take a semi-retirement until 1953 when he was reassigned to another intelligence posting. Ironically, many of his M-16 colleagues believed that Philby was a victim of American McCarthyism and had been unjustly demoted. 
although the British and Americans were fully aware that their Albanian mission had been compromised from the very beginning. The covert operations continued until 1953. The results were predictable enough. The Albanians never trusted the West again. British and American intelligence were set at each other's throats, and Philby continued his espionage activities for the Soviets, including advising them on the day-to-day status of Bonona. It was all in the day's work. In later years, Philby would declaim the notion that he was ever a double agent. All my life I've worked for only one intelligence service, the Soviet service, he told his Russian wife, Rufina. McLean, the model English diplomat. The reader's last contact with McLean was when he had returned to London from Paris at the start of the Second World War. He arrived in the company of a new wife and was patiently awaiting a new posting that reflected his high station life. His patience paid off. Despite his increased drinking and known homosexual liaisons, his connections to the old boys club saw him through. In 1944, McLean preceded Pilby and Burgess to the United States as a first secretary to Lord Halifax at the British Embassy in 1946. Lord Inverchapel, one of Britain's, one of Burgess's older homosexual protégés, was decidedly pro-Soviet, with decidedly pro-Soviet views, had replaced Ambassador Halifax. The Soviets could not believe their good fortune. McLean's new post would give him and Stalin access to all vital military, scientific, political, and diplomatic secrets of the United States, as well as those of the Allied powers in the critical post-war era. McLean did not disappoint. As World War II was drawn to a close and the Cold War was heating up, McLean provided the Soviets with all U.S. military plans in Europe, including the fact that American troops would stop east of the Elba River, giving the Soviets first access to Berlin. He sent the Soviets all cable communications between Winston Churchill and Roosevelt and later Truman and Churchill. He notified the Soviets that Bonona had broken their wartime code, and he reported every message that had been deciphered. Thanks to McLean, Stalin knew in advance what the Allied positions at Yalta and Potsdam conferences would be, and how hard he could push for post-war territorial and political concessions from the Allies, including the forced repatriation of thousands of Russian citizens and soldiers who had sought refuge in the West. Stalin was competently able to bluff his way to victory in post-war Europe because he knew, thanks to McLean, that U.S as yet had no atomic bombs in its military arsenal. In 1947, McLean was appointed the British representative to the Combined Policy Committee on Atomic Development with full access to U.S. Armed Services and Atomic Energy Commission AEC classified information without escort, a privilege that even FBI Chief J. Edgar Hoover was denied. Later on, McLean gave the Soviets data on the U.S. purchase of uranium from Canada and the Belgian Congo. This information enabled the Soviets to approximate the number of atomic bombs the United States was producing. As late as 1948, when McLean was preparing to return to London, he continued to feed the Soviets top U.S. and Allied secret documents that included a 
plans for the formation of the North American Treaty Organization, NATO, a 12-nation mutual defense pact in Europe created in April 1949. When McLean rejoined the Foreign Office in London, he was assigned to head the American Department, where he continued to monitor NATO activities for the Soviets. In 1950, he helped formulate Anglo-American policy for the Korean War. It was McLean who told Stalin that the United States had made the decision not to use atomic weapons except in the most extreme circumstances, information that proved critical in China's decision to intervene in the war. As for the gap in Soviet intelligence left by McLean's departure to England, it was soon filled, as described earlier by Philby and later by Burgess. Thus it was that in the spring of 1951, when FBI and CIA officials informed British intelligence that McLean was a Soviet mole, he and Burgess were able to make their escape to Moscow with the acquiescence of the SIS, who were told not to interfere with their flight by Whitehall under direct orders from the royal family who did not want a scandal and public trial. In the meantime, Philby, who had also come under immediate suspicion as a result of his long association with Burgess and McLean, was able to hold out for another 11 years. Finally, on January 23, 1963, while on SIS assignment in Beirut, he too was permitted to escape to Moscow aboard a Polish ship destined for Odessa on the Black Sea. Blunt managed to hold out the longest. After Philby's defection, Yuri Modin, Blunt's controller, offered him a one-way ticket to a comfortable life in the Soviet workers' paradise. Blunt cut the conversation short by asking, no doubt you can also guarantee total access to the Chateau de Versailles whenever I need to go there for my work. Working for the Soviet Union was one thing. Living there was another. Modin said he was left speechless. The SIS finally got around to picking Blunt up for interrogation in the spring of 1964. Blunt invoked the Official Secrets Act. The British government offered him immunity from prosecution on two conditions. First, that he had terminated his services for the Soviets after the Second World War ended. But Blunt lied and said he had. Second, that he would agree to provide details of his long-term service for the Soviets. This he never did, nor did he ever express any regret for betraying his country. It was not until he received full immunity that he confessed. Afterwards, he underwent six years of tedious and useless debriefings. Blunt knew enough of the royal family's darkest secrets to keep him safe from harm. He was permitted to keep his title and permission and position as curator to the Queen's art collection and the directorship of the Courtauld Institute until his retirement in 1972. To the official cover-up of the Blunt disaster by Sir Roger Hollis, head of M15, with at least the tacit, if not official, approval of Whitehall and the royals, included keeping many cabinet-level officials in the dark as to the extent of Blunt's treachery and the damage he had done to national security. Before he left office in 1965, Hollis ordered that the hundreds of hours of recordings of Blunt's testimony be destroyed, leaving only summary reports behind. Britain's strict libel laws helped for a time to keep the press off Blunt's doorstep. 
Yuri Moden later expressed the opinion that Queen Elizabeth wanted the whole scandal squelched because of Blunt's former close relationship with her father, George VI. Moden stated that she gave Blunt a de facto secret pardon. The public was kept in the dark about the entire affair until November 15, 1979, when Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher took the floor of Parliament and confirmed circulating press reports that Blunt was the fourth man in the Cambridge ring. A finger-pointing debate took place on November 21, 1979. Only then was Blunt's knighthood revoked. Blunt died of a heart attack at his country home on March 26, 1983. He was 75 and a millionaire. His close friend Burgess had a more difficult time of it in Moscow. One night, as Burgess prowled around the city's streets in his English tweeds looking for a male prostitute, he lost half his teeth to some Soviet Stilyagi who wanted to show this Angolski golden boy that what real men did to Zilochi like that. Zilochi like that. In the end, the Soviets provided Burgess with a live-in lover, but this did not appear to ease his homesickness. He died of liver disease on August 19, 1963. His younger brother, Nigel, fled to Moscow to attend the funeral and returned with an urn of ashes that was buried at the family plot at St. John the Evangelist Church in Hampshire, England. On March 6, 1983, Donald McLean died of a heart attack in his Moscow apartment. He was 69. McLean, the most ideologically driven of the Cambridge Spies, was homesick for England. Like Burgess, his body was cremated and his ashes returned to England for burial. Philby fared somewhat better in his adopted homeland. Like Burgess and McLean, he was awarded a lifetime pension. The KGB assisted him in his writings on spycraft and gave him a minor role in intelligence affairs. In 1970, after a serious bout with alcoholism, depression, and attempted suicide, he met and later married his fourth wife, Rufina, who was by his bedside when he died on May 11, 1988. At his burial at Quinsabo Cemetery, west of Moscow, that was traditionally reserved for generals, his casket was attended by a detachment of KGB guards, although, as Moden noted, contrary to reports in the West, Pelvey never attained, never obtained the rank of general in the KGB. Victor Rothschild, the element, the elephant in the living room. It might seem impossible, although many writers on the subject have actually done so, to engage in any study of the Cambridge spies without at least a cursory examination of the role played by one of their most intimate and active patrons, Victor Rothschild of the famous Rothschild banking dynasty. Nathaniel Mayer Victor Rothschild, the fourth baronet and third baron, was born on October 31, 1910. He was one of four children, the only son of Charles and Rosiska Rothschild of the London Rothschilds. Charles had inherited the family fortune, but not the family title. This went to his eccentric, unmarried elder brother, Lionel Walter. Both brothers preferred science to banking, a trait that Victor and his older sister, Miriam, picked up. Victor, who was not particularly close to his parents, was just approaching his 14th birthday when his father committed suicide on October 12, 1923, after a six-year bout with a then incurable sleeping sickness. As he grew into manhood, Victor adopted 
the non-observant secular Jewish sentiment and pro-Zionist sentiment of the Rothschild clan that was committed to the establishment of a Jewish state in Palestine and other sundry revolutionary pet projects. Rothschild came to Trinity College, Cambridge, from Harrow. He was later elected a fellow of Trinity Science. Specifically, zoology was his game, and he was as good at it as he was at cricket. While at Cambridge, his occasional tutor in French was none other than the young debonair Anthony Blunt. Like Blunt, Victor was a chosen apostle, even though the society traditionally passed up young men of science, no matter how talented. This was also the year that some spectators suggested that Rothschild became a member of the British Communist Party, a secret he supposedly kept from his family, although one wonders why he bothered. Considering he hired Comintern agent Rudolf Walt Katz to ghostwrite for Burgess, there is no doubt that Rothschild was closely connected to communist networks on the continent and within the Zionist movement. For the record, in 1940, Katz was ordered out of England due to homosexual contacts with British naval personnel, Costello reported. He also was also reported to have been working closely with the Haganah, the Zionist underground resistance force and secret intelligence network, the precursor of the Central Institute for Intelligence and Special Duties, Mossad Lataf Kadem, Mio Kadem, commonly known as the Mossad, to which Rothschild is said to have been later attached. Rothschild's intelligence triumvirate was completed when his security post in the Commercial Espionage Unit of Section B of M15 in 1940 at the start of the Second World War. Victor had aided Burgess in getting his job at M16 and later Burgess, through his friendship with Deputy Director Guy Liddell, helped get Rothschild a posting in M15. Victor was privy to the progress of the Enigma Project at Bletchley Park thanks to his older sister, Miriam, who worked there. His second wife, Teresa Tess Georgina Mayer, also worked for British intelligence. Over the years, Victor Rothschild became a regular visitor to every British intelligence office and wined and dined every M15 and M16 director and deputy director, including Guy Liddell, at his family mansion at Twing Park, along with an assortment of past and current prime ministers and members of Whitehall, Parliament, the royal family, and of course the Cambridge spies. After the war in 1948, the Rothschild Mansion at Wildston Hall in Hertfordshire was used by British military intelligence to analyze more than 400 tons of documents that arrived from the Allied Document Center in Berlin. With unlimited financial resources and unlimited social, scientific, and political connections, there were few state secrets to which Rothschild was not privy, nor any door leading to the corridors of power in England that was closed to him. As noted earlier, Rothschild kept his dear friend and fellow apostle Burgess on retainer and used him and Blunt as errand boys on the continent. Victor had introduced Burgess to Robert Vanzetart, 
an undersecretary in the Foreign Office who acted as M-16's watchdog. He also arranged God's soldiers into conservative political circles, especially those with Nazi connections. It was Rothschild who had recommended Blunt for a position in M-15 and Kim Philby for a post with Section D in M-16. When Kim Philby was in Paris, he stayed at the Rothschild's Avenue Marigny House. When Philby drew up his original list of possible Comintern agents, not surprisingly, Victor's name was on it. The Rothschild House at 5 Bentick Street, which was home to Burgess and Blunt, was a blackmailer's paradise. Every revolutionary worthy of the name passed through its doors at one time or another. The famous Cambridge author and Catholic convert Malcolm Margaret, 1903-1990, whose wife Kitty was related to the mayors, once visited Rothschild's basement flat and said the company of displaced intellectuals reeked of decay and dissolution. Muggers was particularly offended by Guy Burgess, whom he considered to be the equivalent of a moral leper. After the war, Muggeridge, who had served in the Army Intelligence Corps, was in Paris and attended a party given by Victor at his mansion on the Avenue of Marigny. He reported that he engaged his host and another guest, Kim Pelvey, in a debate on the merits of Churchill's decision to withhold from Stalin vital enigma data, most of which Stalin already had access to. Muggeridge, who was one of the few British writers to report on Stalin's purges and induced famines, said that the Russian dictator could not be trusted. Victor and Kim, who were quite liquored up, argued that the Soviets should have open access to all German decoded messages. Between the time that Burgess and McLean defected to Moscow in 1951 until Philby's escape to Moscow and Blunt's exposure as a Cambridge spy, Rothschild was interrogated no less than 11 times by British intelligence, including the serious crime squad of Scotland Yard. As with Blunt, these chats produced nothing. According to former M-16 agent James Rusbridger, Peter Wright and another M-15 source, Rothschild was fed information in 1962, which ended up in the wrong place, namely with the KGB inside the Soviet embassy in London. But like much of the evidence against Rothschild, it was considered circumstantial. In the end, Victor Rothschild walked away from the scandal, but for the rest of his life he remained under a cloud of suspicion that he was the fifth man of the Cambridge spy ring. Britain's espionage woes continue. Between 1951, when Burgess and McLean ensconced to Moscow, and 1979, when Blunt was publicly exposed as a Soviet spy, Britain was hit with a succession of espionage scandals that suggested Whitehall and Britain's intelligence service remained criminally negligent. Virtually all of these cases were related to national defense. First came the Portland spy case that petered Conan Trofimovich Mullady, alias Gordon Lonsdale, a Soviet illegal resident operating in London and a spy crew. Harry K. Houghton, a naval clerk and known security risk who was posted in 1952 to Britain's top secret naval, naval nuclear submarine project at the Portland Harbor Base and his paramour and later wife, 
Ethel and G, who had a high security clearance at the base. A Polish defector to the CIA, Michael Golanowski, identified Houghton as a spy. This led to the apprehension, trial, and conviction of Lonsdale, G, and Houghton, as well as that of Helen and Peter Kroger, alias Morris and Lona Cohen, a KGB communications team who had also spied in the United States. The next Soviet spy to make his public debut was George Blake. Blake, who identified himself as a cosmopolitan Dutch Jew, was a career M-16 officer whose father had fought for the British during the First World War. Blake attended officer's training at the Royal Navy Reserve where his exceptional linguistic skills attracted the attention of the SIS, although, as Rebecca West pointed out, there was sufficient evidence of his communist connections to militate against his appointment to M-16. Initially, Blake was assigned to spy against the Russians in East Germany. He was then brought back to London to learn Russian at Cambridge. His next posting was head of the M-16 office in South Korea, at which time Blake decided to change sides and work for the great humanitarian dictator Stalin. The year was 1951. Blake said he thought it better for humanity if the communist system prevailed. It was at this point that the media myth that he had been brainwashed into becoming a Soviet spy took form. Blake's M-16 credentials gave him a ground for floor seating at the Anglo-American Berlin Tunnel negotiations, a daring project designed to secure high-level Soviet and East German military and KGB communications. This meant that the Soviets were on to the elaborate and expensive scheme of Operation Gold Berlin and Operation Silver Vienna at the earliest planning stages. Blake's greatest contribution to the common cause, however, was the inside information he provided on M-16 agents and worldwide operations that led to the death of 600 British and American agents and their contacts and informers. Clues from the collapse of the Lonsdale cell eventually led to Blake's capture and conviction and a sentencing on May 3, 1961, of 42 years, the longest prison sentence ever handed down by a British court. His incarceration was cut short when in 1966 a group of peace activists helped escape, helped him escape from the Wormswood, Wormwood Scrubs prison to Moscow, where he eventually joined Lonsdale, who had been traded by the Brits for one of their own businessmen spies. Although he appeared to be satisfied by with the treatment accorded him by the Soviets in Moscow. Blake never was never given a posting in the KGB, except for the fact that Ethel G. was desperate for a man and latched on to the compromised middle-aged Houghton, who had kept a naval Polish mistress while stationed at the British Embassy in Warsaw early in his naval career. Six did not appear to play a major role in either the Lonsdale or Blake spy episodes. This State of affairs, however, rapidly changed with the vassal and perfumo espionage cases that quickly followed these revelations. John Vassal, the Miss Mary of the Admiralty. William John Christmas.
Christopher Vassell, born on September 20, 1924 in London, came from solid Anglican stock. His father was an Anglican cleric, and his parents had upper-class roots. But without the money that went with it, this may account for young Vassell's personal vanity and snobbishness and his insatiable instinct for social climbing social climbing and ingratiating himself into the circles of the rich, the famous, and the influential. He was an ambitious, effeminate, camp young man with plenty of charm and a multitude of interests, talents, and social graces. Nevertheless, without title or wealth, he was forced to begin his professional career at the low end of the totem pole. His first civil servant job was a grade two clerk and photographer for the Royal Air Force. Later, he went Navy and worked for a time with the War Registry, the Admiralty's Chief Communications Center. In his private life, he was a much sought-after sex partner for London's active upper-class homosexual coterie. On occasion, he traveled abroad in the company of wealthy homosexuals and was passed around from one host to another, much like Burgess had passed Jack Hewitt around to his influential associates. Basil believed his bedroom eyes and pert girlish looks attracted men to him. In 1954, much to the surprise of his friends, Basil announced that he had taken a position as clerk in the Naval Attaché office in Moscow, a job considered hardship duty in a country where sodomy was a prosecutable crime. In fact, the Moscow appointment brought Vassal an entirely new source of revenue, along with some great sex. Within days of his arrival in Moscow, the KGB was alerted to Vassal's spy potential. The informer was most likely Sigmund Mikhelsky, a Pole and KGB agent who worked undercover, literally and figuratively. At the British Embassy as a jack-of-all-trades, and general fix-it man and supplier of homosexual, of heterosexual and homosexual papers. The Enterprise in Sigmund was was reported to have been trained at the Soviet Sexpionage Center at Rokhanoi. The British knew, of course, that McKelkey was a plant. All virtually all Soviet-supplied employees at foreign embassies were, and had warned its staff against having any personal dealings with him. Vassal had paid no heed and quickly took Mikulski as a, on as a lover. As lover, despite the fact that Miss Wynn had filed a report with embassy officials stating that Mikhailsky had confided to her that Vassal was one of his four assigned targets. The affair Vassal was engaged in sex. The affair was permitted to continue uninterrupted. There was also evidence that Vassal had engaged in sex with another diplomat at another embassy in Moscow. The Soviets waited until the winter of 1955 before they allegedly sprung their trap. General Oleg Gribinov, then chief of the second directorate of the KGB, was put in charge of the entrapment of Vasily. This fact alone indicated the importance that Soviet intelligence attached to Vasily. The KGB captured the intoxicated Vasil on film 
in flagrante delicto with several men at a party hosted by Mikulski at the Hotel Berlin. At his trial, Vassil insisted that the Soviets threatened to withdraw his diplomatic immunity and throw him in jail for sodomy if he did not cooperate with them. Vassil's story, however, did not jive with his past record that clearly demonstrated his, he betrayed his country willingly and with great skill and enthusiasm. The alleged blackmail photos that Vassil produced at his trial were said to have looked too staged. Vassil's head was always in view. The more likely scenario was that the Soviets won Vassil over by appealing to his vanity, feeding his resentments and providing him with plenty of cold hard cash. The KGB gave Vassil the code name Miss Mary. Blackmail or not, Vassil soon was soon squirreling away top secret documents from the naval attache's office in his brief case to be photographed by the Soviets and then returned to the files the following morning. No one at the embassy appeared to notice that Vassil's lifestyle had suddenly become luxurious, and so his daily espionage activities at the British embassy in Moscow continued until July 1956 when he returned to London and his new posting to the Admiralty's Naval Intelligence Division. In 1958, Vassil was appointed Assistant Secretary to Mr. Thomas G. D. Galbraith, the Civil Lord of the Admiralty and a Member of Parliament for the Hillhead Division of Glasgow. The flow of classified information to the Soviets continued, including research reports from the Admiralty's underwater weapons research establishment at Portland. In October 1959, Russell received a substantial promotion to the fleet section of Military Branch 2. The Soviets had struck gold. Russell now had access to highly classified British Naval and NATO intelligence. British Navy and NATO intelligence that included information on the Admiralty's worldwide fleet, including its operations a naval communication system and the latest breakthroughs in anti-submarine devices and radar technology. Vassal also provided the Soviets with details on the latest development of the British Navy, Royal Navy's invincible class aircraft carriers. By now, Vassal had become so adept at his craft that he was able to photograph himself he would photograph the thousands of top-secret documents he brought home by himself, which cut down on the time necessary to transmit the classified materials to the KGB Center at 2 Dzerzhinsky Square in Moscow. In the meantime, no one at the Admiralty questioned how Vassal could afford his expensive new flat on Dolphin Square that was exclusively furnished with costly antiques, nor how Vassal managed to afford custom-made suits shoes and accessories on a clerk's modest salary. Unfortunately for Vassal, in 1961, British intelligence was put on red alert by Soviet defector Major Anatoly Kohitsko-Lidison, who reported that there was a mole in the Admiralty office in London. Eighteen months later, in September 1962, Vassal was arrested by special branch officers on espionage charges that he was, after he was apprehended, leaving his office with an attache case filled with classified documents. When his apartment was searched, intelligence officers found 176 top secret documents hidden in a secret drawer 
in his desk along with sophisticated photocopy equipment. Unlike the Cambridge spies, Vassal made a full confession. They included a statement that he was motivated to spy for the Russians because he felt that his talents were underappreciated by his superiors. At his trial, Vassal played his blackmail card, and by coincidence, he had the photographs mentioned above to prove it. He then threw himself on the mercy of the court, but the presiding judge was more impressed by his bulging bank account, which pointed to old-fashioned greed as the real motive behind Vassal's espionage career. During the hearings, it was revealed that a backlog in naval intelligence had prevented the positive vetting of Vassal. One of the letters of recommendation found in his file form from an elderly lady his file from an elderly lady hinted that the young man did not appear interested in the opposite sex, but this allusion to Vassal's homosexual proclivities apparently went over the head of the veterans at Whitehall. At work, his deceptive milksop demeanor made him an object of amusement and gossip, but not suspicion. Fleet Street made its own unique contribution to muddying the truth by portraying him by portraying Basil as an ineffectual pansy, a homosexual wimp, and a perfect idiot, forgetting, of course, that for seven years this perfect idiot had, in the words of Rebecca West, neatly weaved his way every evening down Whitehall to his flat on Dolphin Street with an envelope in his overcoat full of secret documents, spending fussy and capable evenings photographing them nicely for the Soviet government, and every morning nearly weaving his way up Whitehall to the Admiralty again to spend five minutes uh, fussily and capably replacing the documents in their files. Later investigations revealed that at the military branch where Vassal worked, the security cupboards were operated by common keys and highly classified material was not separated from, not separated or stored and more secure environments. Vassal had his own sweet key. The security guards stationed at office entrances rarely conducted random checks of the 9,000 employees that went through the Admiralty's doors every day. And that's the end of my reading from the Right of Sodomy for today. Uh, I'll conclude my podcast here since I'm at 54 minutes already. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. May God bless this podcast, and may the Holy Spirit use it to touch people's hearts. In the name of the Father, and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.